Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. We often forget that the divorce rate is really high, but none of those people was intending on getting divorced. They thought they would be together forever. When you talked about the 60%, I actually got chills. I do think, and back to the Springer question that you asked me, though, it's that communication. I mean, how many times do you say, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better friend? How can I be a better dad? How can I be a better sister? Just simply ask that and transform the relationships around you. We need to make more time for that. Thank you for discovering more with us today. My name is Benoit Kim, a nuanced thinker turned psychotherapist. If I learned one thing in life, it is that your network is truly your net worth. And mastering relationship building skills helps you do just that. Today's conversation with a top 1% podcaster and master networker will teach you how to unlock your relationship building skills and elevate your capacity in doing so. Rena Freeman Watts is a former producer of The Jerry Springer Show, radio personality, and a top 1% globally ranked podcast host. Rena's show Better Call Daddy is a combination of her over two decades of media and networking expertise, her curiosity as a story junkie, and her unique dynamic with her dad that she showcases on the podcast every single week. Expect to learn why daddy issues are becoming more relevant, how to master relationship building skills, the reality behind reality TV shows, why Rena gave up sex for clarity, why the divorce rate is so high in the United States, and much, much more. Before the episode, here is the sponsor of the week. How many times do you have to switch stations to find the music you like? Us too. Which is why we've created Cool.fm, the perfect blend of adult hits, modern country, and your favorite classics. Cool.fm is accessible on all mobile platforms and smart devices, so you can multitask and listen to the music you like best. Available online at Cool.fm, that's K-E-W-L.fm, and on all mobile and smart devices. Internet radio at its best. Cool.fm. Now, please enjoy my conversation with the one and only Rena Freeman Watts. Discover More, Discover More is a show, is a show for, for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Rena, welcome to the show. Thank you. I loved that animation and enthusiasm. Let's bring it home. You always told me. That you love daddy issues, aside from being really funny, can you elaborate what that means to you? So I have a really close relationship with my dad, and I have found that other people are interested in how we have that relationship. 
And so people have asked to adopt my dad. People have <laughs> called my dad, dad. Other daddy's girls have found me. And when I initially launched the Better Call Daddy show, I really didn't realize that that was going to be the pull. I thought that my casting background and presenting shock and awe types of stories is what was going to bring people my way. But I had podcasters with comedic podcasts who have never shared their daddy story reach out. I had CEOs of companies who said that they had a hard time living up to their father's success. There are so many daddy issues and so many subjects around being a father. I felt like that was missing in the marketplace. And then I felt like the relationship with me and my dad couldn't be replicated. So that brought a uniqueness factor to the show I wanted to create. The dynamic between you and your dad is extremely unique because even in your introduction for your podcast, there's a banter. You two roast each other openly in the show and outside of the show, right? And I don't believe in coincidence. I think everything happens the way it does. And I'm currently going through therapy myself because of my deeply repressed emotions, a lot of the anger I harbor, and the abandonment issues from my biological father since I've been with my stepdad for about 16 years. But him and I are currently not on speaking terms because of some family issues we're going through. All that to say I lacked a father or men role model growing up. And I think that's extremely pervasive now that a lot of young men don't have good role models. And that's why people like Andrew Tate are becoming this shining role model that people look up to, like fifth graders. And it is extremely concerning, right? But I feel like that's a really uh, important way to start today's episode because the dynamic that you have in the relationship and the closeness you and your dad exemplify on the show and off the show in your stories, like on Instagram and social media, it brings me endless joy day to day. Aw, thank you so much for saying that. I feel like when my dad wraps up the episode, and he genuinely listens to the episode alone. And he has his own experience and take from the interview that I have with the guest. And I feel like what he says to the guest is almost like a present at the end. He gives them encouragement. He makes a place for, for them. He connects with them on Facebook. He, he cares about their story. And I know something that you've said even in your own episodes is, People don't even necessarily want advice. They just want to be seen and heard and listened to and almost validated. And I feel like my dad is so good at validation and care and enthusiasm. And that's enough. Just giving each one of the guests who's vulnerable enough to share with him, that at the end is the magic piece. His ability to hold the space. And his ability to provide like succinct summary in like two sentences. How does he does it? Like, how does he do that so naturally? Uh, he gets a lot of practice with me because I call him <laughs> every single day with so many different situations. Yeah. I will say that the podcast, I feel like has given me even more special daddy time, which my sisters are a little bit jealous of, but <laughs> it's it's helped him learn. The, the experts that are coming on on our show and then just even everyday people, the more stories that you hear in different ways, even if they have the same themes, there's something that you can take from every single story. I think it's honestly helped him in his own life. My dad has never been one to make a lot of friends. He worked, he cared about his family. He 
has taken care of both of his parents. He goes to synagogue. He doesn't need fame. He's a character. He's always beat to his own drum, but he's not doing it for the likes. He is doing it to try to make an impact one person at a time. And I think people feel that. And that spills over also to your family, right? Where I think we can relate, whereas most of us is really busy. A lot of has a lot of ambitions, different gravitational pulls in life, different obligations. And even staying in touch with your good friends in life is hard. I have so many best friends in LA and I see them once every three months. And we're actively trying. And I feel like you have this natural way of keeping this closeness, connections, and kindling with your dad very frequently. And it takes requires both way effort. Because just because we were gifted with this relationship that we call family, their birthright and blood, that still means you have to cultivate it intentionally, especially as you get older and the currents of life gets heavier and heavier and we get swept underneath quite often. Alongside that, I have to say that since we do this together so often, I have to remember to ask my dad, like, how's your day versus <laughs> ready to do another reaction? Yeah. How How is your mom doing? How are you doing? What is mom making you do today? Just simple questions like that. I have to remember to care back because he's so good at caring. Effort is always bi-directional, I believe. And I feel like that segues naturally into the next question, which is your self-proclaimed identity as a story junkie. I never heard that until you brought it up. So I've been stealing it since because I think the essence of podcaster is networkers. We are the masters of networking. And also we love collecting different stories, ergo story junkies that you talked about, right? So like, what about people's stories that inspired you to become this Erico story junkie and led you to a series of life from the Jerry Springer show, legal drama, court TV, and every other dating or reality TVs you've been part of. And storytelling is always a root and the through line. But what about people's stories that call you out so much? I think I love marketing too. And so I'm constantly testing how to say things better. And when you find a good story, it's not just finding a good story, but it's what is going to capture the audience's attention. What's that first hook? What's that first line? I worked in casting. So that is where I got my feet wet in storytelling. One of my best stories was someone who didn't even say her name. She left a message saying, I'm 14 years old and I caught my grandmother in bed with my boyfriend. That gets your attention. That wow. got me promoted. That story went an entire show, multiple segments. So what is the line? What is the story that is going to stop people in their tracks? And how can I find common ground with that person? How can I get that person to open up to me and trust me and relate to me? That is what gets me going. So how do you balance this professional hazard? Like in real life, when I come across people that's fascinating, my brain goes, ooh, podcast, podcast, podcast. So how do you dance this dance where you view humans as wholesomely they are and also be cognizant of the fact that, ooh, they might have some fascinating, important stories to share? Because often it's not ours to keep, but ours to share. Oh, that's a hard question. 
I think, yeah, you have to take a step back and not make it about, oh, they'd make a great podcast and make it about the other person first. That's actually a key to connecting. It's never about you first. It's, I'm impressed by your work. I'd love to learn more. I am blown away by your ideas on YouTube or it's finding the common ground, but complimenting the other person first, engaging with the other person first in multiple ways before you let them know there's something I want from you. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious because you and I were both ferocious podcast consumers, right? That's why we became a producer or the podcasters after the fact. When I tune into a certain podcast, like new ones I come across, within I would say 10 to 15 minutes since I listen to long form podcasts only, I can tell whether the host is having the guest on so they can hear more of their own voices and what they have to speak versus if they're genuinely and authentically interested and curious about what the guest has to offer. Can you tell that? Ooh, that is such a good point. Now I'm going to listen more carefully. I also want to say, can you tell whether the host reached out to the guest or the guest reached out to the host? Who's more interested in being on? Yeah, I view a lot of things in power dynamics because that's what that is, right? Even me as a psychotherapist in my offices, I have to always be cognizant of the fact that there's this invisible power dynamics at play always. And sometimes you can strategically lean into the authoritative role by asking him to, to be more accountable, ask him to complete the in-between sessions, like task, because therapy is just part of the work. But the work happens in integration, as I talk about in the show a lot. But it's a very dangerous fine line because a lot of psychotherapists, physicians, helpers get disqualified and dislicensed from flexing or leaning in too much of their power dynamics. And at the end of the day, we're both humans, you know, but I'm going to also take that cue and listen in to see if I can tell the difference between not desperate per se, but who's more eager because, you know, it, it does show here and there. Oh, yes, it does. Have you seen that in your policy work as well? hundred percent. So I left my, I could tell you've done deep, deep, deep research for the, <laughs> for my background, but long story short, the catalyst for me to leave and depart from my policymaking journey is because I witnessed my CEO and my nonprofit policy, like actually narcissistic as a person. And at the same time, he's this utilitarian impact maker. He believes at the end, which is the impact will justify the means. But when he's in the meetings, when he's talking to, because he was also an advisor to the city of, or the mayor of Philadelphia for 20 years, he's extremely in high power position. But even when he talks about himself and every meeting that I've been part of, because I was a program manager there, 85% of the meetings about him talking about himself. And so, yes, he definitely uses that power dynamics to his leverage when he doesn't really have to. But it's very common for politicians, policymakers, because that power, right? They say absolute power corrupts people absolutely. And I think he's a good example of that, in addition to his narcissistic personality to begin with. Hey, I hope we encourage other people to analyze interviews and politicians a little bit more. Speaking of putting on the mask and not all stories about shocks and awes, in your one of your featured interviews that I did preparation for for today's interview, you talked about 
A lot of TV and media is about putting lipstick on a pig. What is the reality behind so-called many reality TV shows for the you know general public who doesn't really have that opportunity to unveil the curtain, so to speak? Because you have over two decades of extensive experiences in media and TV and everything in between. I've even interviewed some of the stars from the reality shows that I've worked on, and their first-time experiences in Hollywood or even multiple experiences in Hollywood isn't what they thought it would be. And sometimes that can be disheartening. And you and I were talking even before this, some reality stars, they get all of this fame, and then when it goes away, they don't know who they are anymore. So Hollywood can be a destructive force. I will say that it needs to be suspenseful. It needs to evoke emotions. Certain things need to happen in order for people to tune in. So it's edited. Are there elements of truth? Yes. Do they overshoot things in order to capture storylines that they're looking for? Absolutely. If you video people long enough, things are going to happen naturally. That's why when I worked in TV, there was around-the-clock cameras other than in the bathrooms. It's life. And some of it just magically occurs where you can't even script it. And that's the best magic, right? You can have a good story on paper and then they could see the crowd and totally suck too. You know, somebody can be amazing on the phone and they can tell you their story and they can be high energy and then they see the room and the lights and the camera and they freeze. Or somebody can tell you their story and it can take a totally different path than you imagined and they can become a 10 guest and you didn't even see it coming. There's so much nuance in that question. I've, I've seen where they needed to create drama. So like a husband walks off set and it was a work call and they made it look like a fight between the husband and the wife, right? Were there fights between the husband and the wife? Probably, but they needed one in the cut. So sometimes there's that. Also, the kids in like the nanny show, right? Like they may stuff things down the drain and cause a plumbing error. But we also might need that to happen. So we might encourage things. Same thing on the Jerry Springer show, right? Like, do these guests want a piece of each other? Absolutely. Do we encourage them to want a piece of each other? Absolutely. Yeah, it's such a fine line because when that magic happens that you just talked about, that also translates to podcasting. If you're seasoned and experienced enough, if you're in this immersive state, like a flow state with the guests virtually and in person, because flow state happens virtually too, if you're really immersed. And it's even more magical when you know that, oh shit, the listeners will also experience and feel that magical moment, even as a third party. And when everything aligns, it's such a gratifying feeling. But to your point, magic doesn't happen and you can't really manufacture magic all the time. That's what magic means. It happens outside of your control. Because flow state requires the ingredients of surrender. And without surrender, flow state doesn't happen. It's been documented scientifically. You have to have a certain level of discomfort, which is a scaffolding of challenges, right? You have to feel a little bit nervous. And with that little bit of nerve-wracking feeling with the confidence, the preparations, and surrender, that's when flow state happens. And I think that's the same thing for podcasting and interviews and conversations as well. 
I was just talking to my husband about that before I ran on the treadmill before this call is that how many podcasts do you need to listen to of someone to prepare for an interview? When I first started podcasting, I did very little preparation, but now I feel like I want to know that person better. I want to go deeper into conversation, but can you over-prepare? You can only stalk the person's social media so much, especially if you're doing a lot of interviews. How much stalking is the right amount of stalking? How <laughs> many people do you need to connect to in that person's inner circle? Is one or two good? Do you want to leave room for magic? Do you want to leave room for spontaneity? Do you want to know everything about the person? You have to leave room for curiosity and magic in life and in interviewing and podcasting. The title of this episode will be Optimal Amount of Stalking by Rena <laughs> Rena Freeman Watts. I definitely think you can over prepare because like even when I was preparing for you and all the other guests, and it's not really a preset time, but I just intuitively know, oh, this is a good place to stop preparing because that's when my organic curiosity gets tainted. And some of the questions I want to ask is derived out of the question that's been asked before. So I, that's when I know, oh, okay, I think I've done enough preparation for now. And it's such interesting where you have to have the due diligence because due diligence is everything in life. At the same time, you have to leave room because when you create space, something happens, but you have to create space. It's very meta, but that's that's the philosophy I uphold in life. Oh, look, I actually wrapped up with a couple of clients recently, and I was a little disappointed about it. But when I started with them, knew that it could potentially be project-based or short-term. But a little piece of me is like, ah, oh, I kind of wish that would have gone longer, or I kind of wish I would have mapped out my expectations better or found out their expectations better. Like, I always want things to be magnificent. And we did some good work together. And I think he wanted somebody full time and I didn't really want to work in that capacity. So, but then I was thinking to myself, I've just started with this radio station. I have a little bit of a learning curve there because I haven't worked in radio since college and I want to do a really good job at it. And what would happen if I actually took less clients and focused on me a little bit more, right? Like exercising four days a week, eating healthier, sleeping eight hours a day, being more helpful to my children who also deserve mommy, being a better wife, making a couple more phone calls to grandma. You have to make space for what's important to you and for healthy habits. So things weren't, at least they didn't end badly with the client. We just decided he needs a full-time person and I can't be that. So it was great while it lasted and on to something better and making space for something better and, and for something that fits within the time that I have free. I love podcasting so much that even if you pay me a stupid amount of money, I will not stop because I'm almost near four years. I share that because I've realized this on year one of podcasting where the quality of my podcast episodes is predicated on the quality of my life. If I have adventures in life, if I keep reading books, if I have meaningful connections, if I have great conversations offline, that translates directly to the conversation and the quality of the episodes I produce with the guests. So I feel like you shifting that focus into the self is actually going to level up your radio presence through Cool.fm 
and also your podcast. And it's so counterintuitive, but sometimes by doing less, you achieve more. Yes, yes, yes. And you and Patrick talked a little bit about that too. Yeah. And uh, we're terrified of idleness. Like the word idleness is probably like the most terrifying evil word in capitalistic America. Like idleness, what? You're doing nothing? Like, oh, well, what are you going to achieve in life? Well, it, life's a season, right? <laughs> what are you going to achieve in life? Balance, health, <laughs> confidence, better questions. Yeah. Just one more thing alongside that is like, I spent so many years of my life measuring success by money. I know a lot of people talk about that, but that <sighs> is such a double-edged sword. And I don't anymore measure success on money. And I think the pandemic really taught me that. I believe truthfully that money is kind of predestined. And, you know, you can work really hard for it and then you can have a health scare and all your money can go to the hospital. So, yep. <laughs> no, it's, uh, you can pre plan everything meticulously, but that one, car accidents that happened to me a while ago that could just derail everything. You're like, oh, wow, I thought I had a pulse on life. Nope. Yeah, life is a trip. So surrender is the way, right? So I want to ask you about curiosity, which is a through line between everything we just talked about. And I think your success as a mompreneur, mom who's an entrepreneur, uh, why do you think that curiosity, Rena, is a non-negotiable as an entrepreneur who pivoted multiple times throughout your media and business career? Because now you have a media agency, you do production work, right? You also have 14 different things you wear. Not only is curiosity important for entrepreneurship, but we even talked about how it's important for interviewing and podcasting. If you don't have an interest and you're not value aligned in the work, then you're just doing it for money. Do you feel like curiosity allowed you to be okay with the unknown? Yes, I do feel like it helps me be okay with the unknown. Here's an example of a client that I just recently took was she's a multiple best-selling author and she's busy. And I think that sometimes marketing yourself is harder than having someone else market you. And so she reached out to me and said, hey, I've already gotten one testimonial for my upcoming book, but I feel like you would be better at reaching out to someone else who I'd like for a testimonial, would you be interested in that? And I am interested in true crime and forensics, like you mentioned. And I have multiple shared connections with the person who she wanted for the testimonial. And I'm interested in the work that that person does. And they have a large YouTube following. So yeah, can I guarantee her a result? No. Am I pretty sure since we have over 150 shared connections that I can reach the person? Yes. Is it a risk? Yeah. Can I probably reach that person e easier than her? Yeah. Did I get paid up front and tell her no guarantees? Yeah. That's entrepreneurship. <laughs> That's curiosity. But it's also, you know, all of my experience combined into one and a new challenge. That comes down to managing expectations, right? So I think a lot of times we struggle to manage our own expectations. So professionally, how do you massage and help manage your clients, their expectations since you get paid up front? 
oh, I had to get better at that because one thing that I saw my dad and his parents, they ran a manufacturing company for 40 plus years and a lot of their business was on handshakes and trust. And there was a lot of family run businesses in my dad's day. And today, I mean, I'm sorry, but you can't just trust people. <laughs> I've been burned one too many times by people who tell you they have your back or people who say we're friends and we're doing business. No. Once somebody's paid you or once somebody wants to engage with you in business, you're no longer friends. I'm sorry. You know, you can like your clients and you can share personal information with them if that's how you operate in business. But if you're going to do business together, it's business. And I don't want to be chasing money. That is my least favorite thing to do in entrepreneurship. So if you want my time and you want my expertise, it's limited. You got to pay for it. Yeah, that uh, that hits a sore spot because I just departed with my working relationship with my audio engineer who produced my new music intro and who also designed my current graph. I've known him for five years as friends. But, you know, I don't want to share the gory details, but navigating that complexity and multi-layer relationship is really, really tough, especially he's still in Philadelphia. I'm in LA. Yeah, I relate because um, I struggle with that grief because people only view grief as loss of a life. But one of the highest and most intensive form of grief is losing friendship. Like, let's say you've been in friends with so someone for years and something happens and the relationship and friendship comes to an abrupt end, how do you deal with this emptiness and this longing? And that's grief. So I'm still moving through that right now. But yeah, I think that's an important point because sometimes you can't have it all and you have to make priorities and trade-offs based on the circumstances that you're currently in. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry you're going through that. And I would have a hard time with that too. Five years is a really long time. And sometimes we in order to up-level or in order to improve, unfortunately, we have to make those hard choices. Ugh, I can really sympathize. I've been with my editor for three years, and I've questioned whether I need to find somebody else, too. She's been with me since day one. And um, we've had some back and forth moments where I thought I was definitely going to move on. <laughs> yeah. And I called my dad and I said, how do I diplomatically respond? People go through stuff too. Like, you know, she's lost family members during our relationship together. I've, you know, gone through a miscarriage. She's gone through a miscarriage, death and miscarriage. And I was going to say simchas, which is a Hebrew word, but, you know, big events and so many ups and downs in life. And to be honest, sometimes it's just time. The project ends, the friendship ends, and good for you for taking the time to grieve. I have had to part from relationships that no longer served me. And it kept me up at night, and it eventually gets better. A good friend, he's a mentor. We're still staying in touch. He told me that when you're going through this rapid process of leveling up, however you define that as, you have to mentally prepare for the reality that whoever has been with you and next to you won't be there three years from now. And that iteration happens every three years based on the pace of leveling up you're going through. Anything comes up for you there? I've seen it in my own dad's work. My dad has 
managed hundreds of people, who's around now? Very few. Even in creating a podcast, right? It's about the journey. It's about the process. When you listen back to what you sounded like and, you know, you've done, you've been doing this, you said, for four years. Oh my gosh. Even today, I feel like I leveled up for this conversation, right? You're like, Rena, I have a big YouTube presence. You need to make sure your lighting's good, your sound's good. We checked the levels. We talked about, is the static going to be okay? In the beginning, you didn't think about any of that. In the beginning, I had guests walking around on their cell phones, <laughs> walking around, not even sitting. I had best friends from college who used a zillion filler words. I did zero research. It's a constant up-leveling and evaluating and introspection and getting feedback and getting mentored and thinking more intentionally about what you're doing. Just like you and I were talking about who are your friends that have stayed with you from college and seen you through many chapters. Who are the people that can put up with you on a bad day, on a good day, when you want to level up? How are they leveling up? That's a good question. If you're getting the same output every single time and they're not coming up with new freaking ideas, that that is a sign that you might need somebody who can come up with some new ideas. Yeah, I'm terrified to becoming that friend from high school. So where is their varsity letterman jacket at age 30 and still talking about the good old glorious high school days? I was like, holy crap, man. Sure, there is a place to cherish these pure, untainted moments because when you're in high school or college, everyone's broke. So there is no transactional nature, right? So it's very pure. At the same time, if you're in your 30s and 40s, should you, and I hate the word should, should you be reminiscing about the high school days while wearing that Letterman jacket? I don't know. Something is, um, I think I hate to be stuck in a certain memory lane. I'd rather keep create new memories through intentionality. I'm going to give you a little pushback on that, okay? Because I actually okay. just had a conversation with my husband about that too, because we moved back to Houston recently, which was his hometown. He hasn't uh -huh. lived here in 27 years, and he is literally going through memory lane. I mean, he took me to this club <laughs> where he used to hang out in the 80s, and we are the old people in the club now. I'm like, oh my God, would I hang out with any of these people in real life? Do any of these people have jobs? Like, they all are wearing wings and have like dyed crazy color hair, and they look in their mid 40s. And what he said to me was in Judaism, every single year, we celebrate the same holidays. Every year, we try to go a little bit deeper into those holidays and tell the stories a little bit differently so that we can expand upon these traditions. So we're constantly actually living in the past and repeating the cycles of the Bible every year. So maybe if that guy that's wearing the jacket, the letter jacket is stuck in the past, he needs to just wear the letter jacket, rock it with his, you know, beat to his own drum attitude and take on a new skill that enhances that look. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, well received. At the same time, to be fair, you and your husband are leveling up present tense, reminiscing about the past. So you're driving down the memory lane with a different vehicle, right? So there's some nuances there for sure. But I think too, I mean, a part of me, I wanted to interview Jerry Springer. I haven't worked for the guy for over 20 years. But I also wanted to thank him for starting my career and so many other people's careers 
and find out after all of these years, what was it like on his side of the production? Did he really understand all of what we went through to make that show happen? I had been dying to know that for 20 years. Like I always wanted to know that. And I've followed his path. I've watched him speak at universities and commencement speeches and different organizations that I'm not a part of, but respect. He's done a podcast. He's been on Dancing with the Stars. He had an opera done after him. The guy has done everything. And I was just like, man, what was that like on, on your side? But, but I was living in the past. I was living in the past, right? Like that was 20 years ago, Rena. <laughs> but he appreciated my admiration from afar and that I had been following his journey that long. He actually was super humble and really human in our conversation. It felt like a God moment for me, honestly, interviewing him. I felt like God fulfilled that for me. It was something that I needed on a spiritual level. I know one of the most affirmative and divine God moments you experience is having the man who started your career back in the show 20 years later, which is a pretty crazy synchronistic full circle of life that not many have the opportunity to experience and witness. So what was that affirmative moment like? Having this Erico equal grounding because he's on your show this time, whereas in the beginning you were working for his show. What was that moment like and anything that comes up for you right now? Oh, God, I was, first of all, so nervous. And ugh, my kids had messed with my Zoom settings. And I, oh, my God, I was like uninstalling and reinstalling Zoom right before the interview. Then he calls me from like his personal cell phone number. He didn't even block the number. I was like, hey, I'm getting ready to hop on. Are you good? I'm like, I'm good. I'm freaking <laughs> out. Totally freaking out. I've done all this preparation and I want to be cool and like ready 10 minutes before and looking good. And I'm panicking that the video is screwed up and I'm using Zoom at the time. The video only recorded him. It did not record any of me. And then I'm like, what is that on a spiritual level? At least I got Jerry and I was able to like cut up some of those clips, but more then the video, it was truly about that full circle moment for me. It was validating. It felt like closure. It felt like unanswered questions that I had for all of these years. And I was only supposed to get 20 minutes with the guy. He went an hour. He was so generous with his time. I feel like for so much of my life, I put celebrities up on this pedestal, especially him. I met him in my early 20s. I was 21 years old being a producer on that show. And even though I was backstage with the guy from week to week and sitting next to him, I was fangirling and nervous around him and not myself ever the whole time on the show. I was putting him on this pedestal. And 20 years later, he was like, oh my God, you worked for me when you were a kid. I remember you when you were a baby. You know, you're all grown up now. He was so human and so complimentary. And he even got the theme of my show. He had a question for my dad and he told me, you know, your idea is great. It can't be replicated. The relationship that you have with your dad is unique. Lean into that. So that was really validating too. That's awesome where like the secret sauce that holds your puzzle and your show together is recognized by the man started your career. Oh, I love that you said that. And yes, that's exactly it. 
So let's go down to these affirmative moments by the cosmos that we call God a little bit deeper, where you probably came across this. This is one of my favorite segments to ask on the show, where every single person I've had on the show, that's like 85 plus at this point, they've all had some sort of affirmative moments by God in the cosmos during some of their lowest moments in life. But then the God was like, Rena, stay the course, keep going. Do you have any other moments that came up besides the full circle moments with Jerry? Any moments that held you to this path? Because entrepreneurship, being a mom, being a good human, and also being a podcaster of a top 1% show comes with a lot of mental gymnastics and just... Uh, I'll tell you, my belief in God stems from having a good dad in this world. There were many years where I didn't even believe in God. I for sure tried to test him. I'm like, okay, there's a God if I make this basket. Okay, best two out of three. <laughs> that was me as a kid. What came up for me when you were describing the question was I got seriously screwed over by someone in business. And I had been working for this person for like seven months, I left a financial firm to work for this guy. And he said he was going to make me a partner. He made me business cards. He flew me out to Orange County. I was pregnant. I didn't even tell him. I put on this event. He was taking me into multi-million dollar, you know, business owners' homes. And he ended up cutting me completely out of a deal. Like, he closed on a very large life insurance policy that I brought the lender for. I organized the event around. I met with. He wasn't even there. And I will never forget this moment. I called the lender and he told me, you know, that business deal closed, right? I had just pumped breast milk. I dropped the breast milk all over the floor. All of the, I was shook. I was shaking. I had no idea that they closed that behind my back. And not only did the lender stab me in the back, you know, the CPA stabbed me in the back. All of these people that stood next to me that said, you're the bridge here. You're ugh, people that I trusted. That was one of my hardest lessons in life. And, and I'm still. I have a hard time with that in, in even taking new clients because it is a bit of trust in everybody that you do business with. That's why, I, and I learned this from someone who I'm paying right now to give my son chess lessons. He will not give my son a chess lesson unless he gets paid first. Even if I've previously paid him, he won't even talk to me unless the money's in the bank first. <laughs> you know, he's got better things to do, right? He's in 80 schools across the nation and He's newly married and he'd rather do a date night. If the money is not in the bank, he's not even going to chat me back. And I'm like, as abrasive as that may seem, good for him. You know, I learned from that. Business is business, right? So that was the biggest burn I've ever experienced because I ended up having a miscarriage after flying my in-laws out to take care of my kids and go put on an event and go into all of these very expensive homes and present to these people privately. I remember too, my oldest son, I think, said to me, all of the money in the world can't replace the baby that you then had after. I'll just never forget that. So I feel fortunate that I was able to then have a healthy baby. And, and that's another thing too about doing business is that you really, just like you 
stalk people online to be on your podcast and who you're going to align yourself with and what they say. And you do all of this research into who you're showcasing. You need to do that in business as well. And I think sometimes we forget that because these opportunities come so quickly your way that you don't do enough research into who their customers are, how they're treating their customers, how are they doing business. And to be honest, there was red flags with this guy. I left the firm that I was at because he screwed over my boss. And he also had all of these certificates on his wall on how not to commit fraud, yet the guy was totally a fraudster. So I learned to do better research. I learned to listen to my gut more because my gut told me that he was going to screw me over too. And my dad too encouraged me to go on that trip because he thought, if you just close one, it's worth it. And now too, I was like, dad, you weren't right about that one. I totally should have listened to my gut. And he was like, I think you're right. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for sharing about the miscarriage because I know that's one of the highest form of pain emotionally, physically, mentally that a woman and not just woman, that a married couple can experience together. But of course, it's more visceral for you, literally biologically. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing. And once again, every time you and I, we talk offline and online, the synchronistic nature is crazy because I just had this conversation this morning at the gym with the gym friends. He's in his late 60s, uh, but like the 5 a.m. crew is very tight in the morning. And we were talking about how whoever calls themselves humble are not humble. Just like the guy Ooh. with wall of certificates saying that, oh, anti-fragilent, people who overcompensate mm. is probably the projections of what they lack internally. So it's very timely with the discussions I had in the gym. And um, yeah, I want to take that actually into this question that just came up from what you just shared. A lot of people, I think in 2023, have this over fixations on, oh, wasted time. Oh, what if I make the wrong decisions and make the wrong move in life? I'm going to waste my time. I don't agree with that because I've pivoted my career three times, as you know, in seven years. And every single thing I've taken away from my previous career, because I'm not talking about job transitions, I'm talking about career transitions. There's always one or two skill set that I cultivated. I continue to exercise and apply in my current profession, whether it's from policy to psychotherapy or from management consulting, you probably didn't know about because it's not my resume. I left that red race six months after graduation, but I always took away something. How do you view this idea that there is no such thing as wasted opportunity as long as you're being intentional with this transferable skill set mindset? I often talk about transferable skills and I often talk about the fact that I have pivoted and tried so many things in my career, that's really true. I went from being a producer in Chicago and NBC Tower, making 80000 a year my first year out of college, to trying a sales role that I was very unfit for. I thought if I could talk people into doing crazy things on national television, of course I could sell them a sporting event package to these gatekeeper CEOs. Well, I had to go through the gatekeeper to get to the CEO and try to get them to go to these sporting event packages. It was brutal. It was such a chop shop. It sucked. I hated it. I literally told them I was going out for a smoke break and never came back. (laughs) (laughs) And then I moved to LA. I was like, okay, that wasn't for me. But I was willing to try it. It was in the same building. I had schmoozed people in NBC. I found out about the job. I think you have to be 
willing to try things, but also be willing to quit things quickly that aren't a good fit. So I moved to LA and I don't even think, I mean, my husband tells me this. He's like, you take so many opportunities that I wouldn't even entertain, right? Like he has specific companies that he wouldn't work for. He has specific verticals that he wouldn't work for. I've worked in financial services. I've worked in telecom. I've worked in the entrepreneurial space. I'm like, marketing is marketing. If if I like the people and how they do business and I find interest in the work that they're doing, I can market them. So I went from being a producer on a nationally syndicated show to starting all over as an executive assistant to three very seasoned producers because I was like, hey, these guys have worked in Hollywood three generations. They have a lot of connections. They're working on a different side of the industry. I'm going to learn something. Do I want to be there forever? No, but it's that whole tour of duty thing. Work there till you network enough. Learn something. And find another opportunity. And I worked for the Kyoto Brothers. They were the first people who hired me in LA. It was a special effects animation company in Burbank. These guys, it was a family-run business, which is also great because then they're willing to let you wear a lot of different hats and kind of peek behind the curtain. That's who you want to work for. You don't want to work for the studio where there's so many like people having to position themselves. And uh, that that's not the way to go. And they don't pay well. So I worked for the Kyoto Brothers. I got the opportunity to see them pitch Disney and Paramount and work on a South Park feature and all of these things and see the accounts payable and receivable behind that and how they location scout and all of these things that I definitely didn't learn at Springer. And then from there, I was applying to gigs on the side to get back into production. Everybody wants the production gigs, but those opportunities are a lot harder to get. So you need something stable that's going to pay the rent. And then when you get enough experience, you can jump back to what you really want to be doing. But get some legs first. Yeah, the idea of get your boots wet or boots on the grounds, it works, but there's nuances and layers to that too, right? It's not just, oh yeah, get your feet wet, just go out there. It's like, uh, hold on, there's like six levels before that step. Yeah, so I got a job at VH1 from the Kyoto Brothers, and it was a pilot. It was seven weeks on the road going to all these different cities. And I got to work as a field interviewer and it was fun. My college friend came and met me along the way in three different locations. And you definitely are partying after you're shooting these videos. But then it didn't get picked up until like a year later. So I came crawling back to the Kyoto Brothers like, hey, can I answer phones again? And luckily that worked once. And they took me back until I was able to get another gig. But eventually you can't do that multiple times. So like you're saying, you can get your boots wet, but you have to then be willing to market yourself to new opportunities and have the confidence that you can get a post-production supervisor role. You can get a script supervisor role. You can get a producer role. You have to learn what that means and be confident enough to speak to those roles and responsibilities. A timeless advice in the business world is it's not what you know, it's who you know. Of course, it's both. You can know the best people, gatekeepers, as you alluded to. But if you don't know shit, you're going to get let go within the first week. Like these people at this caliber and high level, they can sniff out BS and fluff from thousand miles away. You can't fluff your way through. In that, Rena, how do you approach managing networking? Because I'm not talking about the act of networking, but once you do that step, how do you maintain that? Because with the Kyoto brothers, that's what they took. It's not just, oh, because it worked. There's enough databases. There's enough data points that, oh, Reno was good at this. We'll trust her again. Yes, 
And I'm sure you really, really maintained that meaningful relationship well to the point that they accept you back. How do you do that? I did keep in touch with them. Also, Roger Medinich, who was the CFO at the time, he and I would go out to screeners together. I I had access since I was in the Producers Guild to go to movies before they came out. That, that was a blast. So I kept up with people in the company. Yeah, it takes getting together with people in real life, Christmas cards, thank you cards, being a part of their newsletter, seeing what projects they're up to, congratulating them on what they're accomplishing. I interviewed the Kyoto Brothers on my podcast too. What's crazy is they were best known for killer clowns from outer space. It was like a cult film over 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. And then it came back. Oh my gosh, they've now done Alien Christmas on Netflix. So I congratulated them about that. I went to a Halloween store and I saw killer clowns in there with my own kids. So I took a picture of my three-year-old next to one of the clowns and I sent them a picture that they could use for social. It's coming up with ways to congratulate them on following people's paths. Again, like Springer, like knowing that he had a podcast, tuning into one of his lives, listening to the entire live, keeping in touch with his publicist, knowing that his grandson had a bar mitzvah, knowing that he's speaking at a commencement. It's genuinely caring about people. I know that that sounds like just a simple thing, but it takes effort. And you know, today I had Wendy Steinberg send me an episode that I did with her, oh my gosh, like three or four months ago before she put it out. I listened to the entire thing. In the episode, I had mentioned a couple episodes that I had done on my own podcast. So then I'm going to say, hey, I listened to the entire episode. I know in episode, I mentioned these people. Would you like an introduction to those people who I mentioned in episode? Would you like links to it to include in the show notes? How can you like accentuate what other people are doing or add value to what other people are doing? Can you do an Instagram live with them? Can you can you do a LinkedIn audio with them? Can you do a Twitter space with them? Can you collaborate with them in another medium other than just the podcast that you've done together? Can you make them an introduction? Can you add them on your IMDb? Can you send them an intern? We talked about that, right? Find out where they're struggling. Find out who they want to be introduced to. Find out who's the most interesting person they know and take a recommendation from them. There's so many ways that you can keep the conversation going. That's what relationship building looks like for me. It sounds simple, but it is hard AF. It's tremendous effort because we wear so many other things outside of this. And like podcasting or whatever project, it's almost like 20% is what people see and 80% is the undercurrents, the underneath, the effort that goes behind the scenes. But it's that 80% that makes the 20% pop. And that's the 100% effort, right? And what you said reminds me of the book, How to Be Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And one of the most important tenets from that book, I read that like, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, he talks about everyone's favorite word is hearing their own name. And what you said is the level up deeper than that, right? everyone's favorite if they're busy, if they're in the media, influential space, you name calling and dropping references from a while ago, which you already did in the beginning of this interview on my show. It just brings this warm tingling to you're like, wow, whoever I'm sitting across from done their due diligence, they've gone deep. And we appreciate that depth because having in-depth approach 
in a busy world is really, really difficult. So when you can do that, that is your competitive edge in every sense of that word. And like we were talking about earlier, you have to make space for it. So get rid of 15 minutes of scrolling a day and be intentional with the people who show up for you on every platform. You can make a list of those people. I mean, I certainly know who's engaging with me on LinkedIn, who's engaging with me on Twitter, who's showing up for me on Facebook. I know who my people are on every platform. If you need to write that down, go show all those people love. Here's a rule. When somebody comments on your stuff, go comment on three of their stuff. Never leave people hanging that take care of you. It's such an easy reciprocal thing to do. And you do this exceptionally well where I introduce Joshua Greenfield. I'm really excited to tune into the episode and listening through your lens and your, your dad's commentary at the end. But you reposted his last reel on his Instagram world ever. He didn't even see that you reposting it because he's gone from the, the, the world of Instagram. But I knew that you did that and other people see and for those that know, that effort goes an extra mile. And you've been exceptionally generous with me with IMDB tip that the intern completed recently and other things we've been getting back and forth. But that's like the reciprocity that it's, I think is lacking now where it's also my personality trait where if someone's really good to me, um, because we're, we're fast friends, right? And I'm looking forward to cultivating our friendship deeper down the road. But when I see another person that's generous to me, I have this unshakable indebted feeling. If I don't do something back, I can't sleep. I, I hate being indebted. And that's a conditioning comes from my Asian culture, being Christian, what a good person Erico means. But not all conditioning needs to be unlearned. And none of what we're saying is new. People have said it before. But original ideas are overvalued. Nobody cares about original ideas. It's the execution. And the ethos of what you're just saying is how to execute as a networker. And I'm going to curate that list if I have some time because there are so many things on our plates day to day. That will up your retention. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> but I do want to hit you with a couple more questions that I think will provide volume and I'm personally curious in. So I want to bring back to the Jerry Springer show really quickly based on my research. And I'd love to hear it take on this question so like, what did you learn about the most common trope of all rom-com and romantic reality TV shows, which is the love triangle dynamic? The biggest thing, and this is going to sound funny, is that when people had the reaction, what? That was like, you knew you were going to get chewed out over the show because anybody who's been married for any amount of time and then they find out that their husband is sleeping with somebody else, I don't think that's how they would really <laughs> react. They might not say much, but it's going to be much more shocking. One thing I learned is that when you find out truly horrible, you know, crushing information like that, there's an element of pause. And especially, oh my God, in front of an audience, oh my goodness, some of these people literally have trouble explaining their feelings. They just literally go after and rip the other person apart. And I think that that's what the audience really connects to. They want somebody who's going to have that anger, somebody who's going to freak out publicly. 
I think that's what people wanted to see because there's so many hurting people. People that are willing to emote like that publicly, that is what made the crowd go wild. Emotions is a, it's a funny thing, but <laughs> like, what was some of the reasons and circumstances behind men cheating on their spouses? And is it, was it about power or just about lust? Like, what was it? There was always something missing in the relationship. That is what I mainly saw. It's not ever going to really be about the dishes or the trash. <laughs> it's not really about that. They're mismatched or they don't communicate well or they got together young or the guy's a dog. Communication is is a big one. Right. Not only could they barely explain their story on stage, but they could barely communicate with each other either. Communication's tough, but you get better just by listening to yourself and by doing more interviews and by being yourself. And I would say I'm sorry if I use a lot of filler words. The best storytellers are just able to relax and have a conversation. And you know, when I started the radio, I, I don't know if I should even talk about this, but I get stiff and I want and I like you, you were talking about how you've read some intros and how you sound different when you read it versus when you're just off the cup and say it. Me too, because I had to do some public service announcements or I needed to say something creative about the artist coming up. There's a big difference in reading and just casually having a conversation. I think all the master podcasters and uh, Justin Bieber said this in an interview a long time ago. He said that or a reporter was asking Justin that, hey, JB, how did you know that you made it as this global superstar? And he said, it's when I started to sing, like how I would talk. Ooh. And I think, and I think master podcasters, they're so conversational. And I think this episode is a lot more organic. We're having fun venturing back and forth while being intentional with the topics at hand. And that takes years. And here's something interesting about me. Like I went to a youth performing arts school. I do not get lit up by crowds. I actually am very nervous performing in front of large rooms of people. I feel much more comfortable with the one-on-one. -on -one. And after doing hundreds of interviews and now some in-person interviews, it has helped me become more comfortable speaking, more comfortable doing lives. And like you said, you learn along the way. The more of this you do, you sharpen your sword. So speaking of when you are young, there is a very, very rare common ground. Tie this all the way to the beginning of the conversations between you and I, which is our audacious decisions that people thought was crazy to give up sex to work on ourselves which oh, i'm here sure comes the juice <laughs> which i'm sure attributed to your 16 year long and counting marriage which is a rare sight in 2023 so we both gave up sex for intentionality and just to address some of the internal moral and emotional incongruences can you elaborate on that decisions because it's not a common decision to say the least. Yeah, I had a cousin who started going to the Kabbalah Center in LA. And he is the only phone number that my mom gave me when I moved <laughs> to a big city. Oh, you're moving to LA? We have a cousin there. You should look him up and show up at his door. He'll have you over for dinner. That was, I don't think I'd ever really hung out with him at any family events other than when I moved to LA. And he started welcoming me into his home. and. Through the Kabbalah Center, he had met all kinds of interesting characters off of Venice Beach. And I met him in my 
late to mid 20s. And I was working in reality TV and living the Hollywood life. I was very self-absorbed. And after getting my name in the credits and working on all kinds of productions, I still felt empty. And he was like, if you want to attract the right person and you want to have more meaningful relationships, you need to stop having sex. (laughs) Yeah, he's the one that told me. And boy, was he right. (laughs) And that actually sparked something in me. I ended up going on a singles trip to Israel after, I think, the second season of me working on Nanny 911. And my roommate on the trip had been a former executive producer and worked with Jim Carrey's wife. And she had a fairly successful stint in Hollywood. And she had also gone to the Kabbalah Center and she started keeping Shabbos and the Sabbath and unplugging one day a week and had met a guy and was kind of looking for answers from God and whether he was the one. And she was going to the Western Wall and praying. And I was like, oh my God, these people have figured out something that I haven't. So I started following her there. I was like, what do you pray about? And I hadn't really prayed much other than please God, let this show go well. I did that at Springer many times. That was my relationship with God through my (laughs) 20s was just like all about me. (laughs) And I started going to my cousin's house for Friday night meals and saw how he was welcoming to people in the community from all walks of life and even let some guy who had moved from New York and I don't know if he was homeless or what, but he was working at a restaurant and he was having a hard time and my cousin let him sleep on his couch for eight months. So my cousin made a really big impact on me and how I saw him connecting with the community and trying to elevate spiritually. And he was like, why don't you unplug one day a week and see what that does for you? So that's Mm. where that started. And he was like, what if one day a week for you were different than the rest of your week? Like, what if you didn't do dishes? What if you didn't work? What if you ate special foods that you didn't eat the rest of the week? I was like, oh, that's cool. He was like, what if you elevated one day a week from the rest of your norm? And that could be the Sabbath. So I started doing that. I started taking walks outside. I started being more cognizant of the friendships I was making. He also witnessed me break up with someone who wasn't healthy for me that I had met at the Jerry Springer show. So after that relationship too, I was like, how did I get in that relationship? So it was figuring out how I got in that relationship, taking a break from sex because I felt like it was clouding my vision. And then I've attained what I came out to LA to do. I got my name in the credits. I've become a producer, a post-production supervisor, an editor, a script supervisor. I've held all of these different roles and I still feel empty. Let me try to clear my head a bit. So I got into yoga. I didn't have sex for a year and a half. Then my mom got breast cancer and I had already planned this trip to Israel. And so she had her sisters like going in and taking care of her. And one of her sisters was a nurse. So I felt okay to go on the trip and I was going to pray for her in Israel. And then after the trip, I would be there for the reconstruction, which I felt like was a very important time to be there anyway. And so after I went and took care of my mother for a couple of months in between seasons of Nanny 911 and after this big sex break, 
I ended up meeting my husband shortly after, and I felt like that was connected. He was so different than any of the guys that I had dated in L.A. He was a hyper-intellectual. He could care less about Hollywood. He had a spiritual background himself. He also had recently taken his first trip to Israel, which I thought was very strange that we did that around the same time. Serendipity, maybe, but it felt like a God moment like we were talking about. So we met on J-Date and I wasn't even a paying member. So we had to be on at the same time for him to even message me. And then (laughs) he drove from Berkeley to LA and we met on Venice Beach. And four months later, we were engaged. How much of that was because of his red beard? (laughs) That's funny, but... I thought he was wearing a cowboy hat in the J-Date picture, and it was actually like an Australian fedora. But I was like, oh, he looks kind of country. I was like, another Jew from the country. All right. So yeah, it was partially Redbeard. What about that advice or encouragement by your cousin that really resonated with you? Because I love to contextualize and paint a picture where people who struggle with this advice, oh, who do I listen to? What do I listen to? And especially in 2023. Part of it was a feeling. How many married couples do you see that are actually happy in their marriage? I saw the love between him and his wife, and it was something different. It was very different from the relationships I had seen at Springer. It was very different from the relationships I was seeing in the reality TV shows that I was working in. And it felt holy. And if you want to experience that, you ask, how did they attain that? And they got married later in life, too. I mean, my God, my friends thought I was completely insane. I was like at peak fitness. At the peak part of my career, I, you know, had sex before, had had relationships before, had gone out on many dates before. And I'm taking a year and a half off from doing that. But looking back, I mean, that was the best decision. Because even right before I met my husband, Who I was attracting was much closer to what I wanted. (laughs) It was a completely different level in who I attracted. I resonate because, as you know, I gave up sex for like three years living with my current fiance. Everyone thought I was bonkers. They're like, the only way to do what you're doing is do not live together in LA. And we said, well, financially, it's just not feasible. And I'm moving across the country. For her, of course, we're living together. And every single Christian mentors I had who I went for advice seeking, they're like, dude, just just get married on paper first. There's there's no chance. We did it for three years until our recent engagement end of November. And yeah, I echo that message where I think all worthy things in life are effortful. And I think all effortful things are worthy. So at least in our romantic journey. We will be getting married soon. And in your journey, I think we can both echo that it was a very worthy, but low-key crazy thing that we did at the time. Wow. Well, congratulations. I mean, that's an incredible accomplishment. And the fact that you guys stayed together, there also is this other tradition in Judaism, and it's a secret to Jewish marriages. And I'm not like an expert on this, but it is a practice that I've kept up for 16 years. And you only have sex like two weeks out of 
you're two weeks on, two weeks off. So when you bleed, you're not together. And then a week you have to be clean. And then two weeks you can be together. And in the time that you can't be together, you can't touch, you can't pass things to each other. There's no kissing. But that is what builds up the excitement for when you can be together. So before you can be together, you go to the mikvah. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's like a ritual bath or whatever. And another thing that's really cool about going to the mikvah, which is kind of like a spiritual bath or whatever, when you dip, you're like cleansing yourself of impurities. And you can also, something that I do, and it's also something that I do when I light candles on Friday night, is I pray for other people who need prayers. And I have found that when I'm doing that dip once a month, people who need the prayers like come into my mind. So somebody that is pregnant, I pray for them to have an easy birth or somebody that wants to have a kid, I pray for them to be able to do that. Somebody who's struggling in their marriage or somebody who's sick, I try to think about other people that I can pray for when I myself am doing a good deed because when I do good deeds, they're few and far between. So I try to amplify my good deeds by praying for others at the same time. I think the through line between our stories in and out of this podcast content is it's all about eliminating distractions in life. Because when you create space for good things to happen, good things do happen. But also level deeper than that is when you take away lust and sexuality as a crutch, as a coping mechanism to deal with the struggles of relationship, because all relationships ebbs and flow. Even with your 16 years and counting, I'm sure there are shit days. There's where you want to strangle your husband and vice versa. And that's normal. It's about how you come back from those dips. When we gave up sex, because as you said, it's not just sex intercourse. You give up hooking up, like going to third base because it creates temptations. So a lot of my college friends who know me because I used to be in Greek life. I used to be a frat star. I used to done everything that people can think about. They're like, you live a hermit life. You're a monk. But instead of a mountain, you live in LA and Philadelphia at the time. But what people don't know is when you take away distractions from your relationship, it forces you to confront them head on. You either make it or you don't. There is no in-between because you can't kiss, you can't hook up. There's no sex. There's, it's just you're sober-minded the entire time, right? So, and I, I attribute where we are relationally to that decisions and many more. Like every Sunday, we have a practice called Close and Grows. Every single week for three and a half, we're together for almost four years as well, like three and a half years. Every Sunday after church, we dedicate 30 to an hour, depending on how much we have to talk about, where we designate a time every Sunday to talk about the close. What did we do well for each other? What did you do well in terms of the container of our relationship? And then the grow is what can you improve upon? And this is a safe, sacred space where we can criticize each other in a respectful, loving way because we have to be each other's speed bumps. Right? You don't want to just destroy them and put them down, but you need to challenge your one other, this lifelong partner to grow together. You can't just yes men and yes woman. That's how most relationships end. And I just want to tie this into the a quick, I guess, feedback I gave at the Christian retreat this weekend. I came back from for high school ministry where I serve as a volunteer as a teacher. We were having a seminar about dating violence. And I was telling them that hey, raise your hands if you want to date someone. Everyone raise their hands. And I said, eventually, if you want to get married, raise your hands. Everyone raises their hands. They're giggling because they get nervous. Oh, marriage, ah, because they're high schoolers. And I told them, 
the current statistics in America for divorce is about 50%, but the lifetime divorce rate is about 60%. So, and I told them, none of those 60% divorcees in America wanted to get divorced when they got married. Every single one of those 60% divorcees thought they're going to be with their partners for life. But lo and behold, they're divorced, 60% of them. So to fight against that, you have to be so intentional with proactive communications, being each other's speed bump, help each other grow, everything we talked about in this episode. But I, I felt called to share that because we often forget that the divorce rate is really high, but none of those people was intending on getting divorced. They thought they would be together forever, but just wasn't the case. When you talked about the 60%, I actually got chills. I do think, and back to the Springer question that you asked me, though, it's that communication. I mean, how many times do you say, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better friend? How can I be a better dad? How can I be a better sister? You can just simply ask that and transform the relationships around you. We need to make more time for that. That too is what I'm aiming at with creating a family show. Look, I have relationships in my own family that I struggle with, but it's just not giving up on them. I honestly think that that's the difference between who stays married and who gets divorced. We all are, have experienced the same problems, mainly. I, I think the cheating thing is hard to come back from, but people do it or abuse. I think those are really hard to come back from, but frustration or your house being a mess or losing jobs or death or grieving or miscarriage, they're very challenging. But I think that there are many things that can be worked out. Even challenges in, in raising children can be a really hard one. Children with special needs, children who might not meet your expectations. I think when you have a family, you, you hope it's going to be a loving family, but parenting is very hard and it brings out some of your, your biggest triggers. <laughs> but if you have a spouse who you are in love with and you have date nights with and who you communicate with and who you encourage communication with, I think that that can keep you together. One of the best things I've heard is a lot of people, they spend more effort repairing their friendships like best friends than they do in their own marriage. Yeah. Like, just think about that. How much effort do we exert trying to repair and maintenance and massage? Oh, I'm sorry, best friend. I pissed you off. Let's talk about it. Let's meet up. Let's have dinner. What can I do to do better? Most couple therapies fail. Not most, because that's 51%. A lot of couples therapy fail because for 12 weeks, eight weeks, 16 weeks, you, 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 he, 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 she, she, she. Where are you in the equation? Because last time I checked, it takes two to dance. So, and that's when you, like the idea that when you point at the moon, you know, don't focus on the finger, look at the moon, right? So I think relationships, the testimony to you, 16 year and counting marriage, your proactive tendency as a person, as a professional, I think all comes down to being upfront, knowing what you want, conveying what you want and executing what you want. And I think that translates and it's a transferable skill set, professional, interpersonal, and relationally, and pretty much all domains of our lives. You are an incredible host. And I love how you can weave all of that together. Even talking about how to be a better spouse, 
makes me want to take action on that today. It's the little things. It's truly the little things. My husband built my podcasting booth. When I told him that I needed better lighting, he went and drug up the Christmas lights. And he was like, do you want to put these in your lap? Do you want me to double tape them to the moving blanket? He helped me set up my microphone for my radio show. He's my biggest encourager. And I think I picked a husband like that because of who my dad is. Given the encompassing nature of our conversations today, Rena, what is one domain in your life that you feel inspired to discover more about after this conversation? Well, one area that I am discovering more about is how to sound natural on the radio show. I am totally tensing up. And again, you're getting ready to start interviewing people in person. It's a totally different vibe. It's a different dance. And the only way to get better at those things and to sharpen those skills is by doing it. I am such an encourager of taking action. I even encourage my own husband. I'm like, if you have an idea at work, something that you haven't been tasked with, but you think could add value to your organization, throw it out there, do it. The moment you have an idea, and I, as a mompreneur of four, if I have an idea, I just do it. You can always correct it later. You can always hone it later. You can always do a different iteration of it later. I recently wrote an email and said that the client was a historical fiction writer, but she was really a historical true crime writer. I was like, ooh, another opportunity to reach back out and correct myself and say it better. So. The one thing I want to end on is if you have an idea, don't let it die. Just do it. People forget that course correct requires taking the course to begin with. Yes. And I think people get caught up too much in course corrections. But speaking of Kill.fm, speaking of the sound bites and where you're currently venturing to the unknown of radio personality, this is my red carpet moment, Rena. Where can people connect with you further? Check out all their projects, your podcast, your website, your business. Most social media, you can find me at Rena Friedman Watts. So I am Rena Friedman Watts on Instagram and LinkedIn. On Twitter, I am Rena Rena. And you can find all of Better Call Daddy at bettercalldaddy.com. Everybody should subscribe, leave Benoit a five star review, send him an animated message. He will definitely respond to it. Give him some feedback. Let him know how he can be a better host and a better friend. And with that, Rena, I appreciate you for your thoughtful responses and your animations and high energy that I'm trying to replicate and learn from you from. And just thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. This is a blast. 